Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Uh, today we have an episode that's a little bit different for you. We haven't generally done episodes related to current events, but the current events that are going on have made things kind of challenging to ignore. The coronavirus pandemic has already placed a heavy toll on society as a whole. Over 100,000 people are already sick, thousands have died, businesses, schools, and recreational events are closing, and markets have been crashing. I'm not an epidemiologist, and I don't pretend to have any kind of special knowledge here, but if experts are to be believed about this, uh, things are likely to get worse before they get any better. But whether you've been af directly affected by this virus pandemic or not, uh, there's been this other cost, and it's the weight of fear and anxiety that people have been experiencing, that it has placed on all of us. Natural questions arise like, how is this going to change our lives moving forward? How at risk am I? Should I stop seeing people I love? Is someone that I know going to die? Is my job going to go back to normal? And what if nothing's the same after this? And those are natural questions, and there's no shame in them. And I can say personally that I've started to feel psycho-emotionally activated literally every time that I hear the word coronavirus, yeah. if not, you know, just kind of generally moving through my day as these thoughts are kind of operating in the background. Yeah. Uh, I get irritable just thinking about it. And I don't know if you're feeling the same way, but we're, you know, give or take a month into this darn thing, mm -hmm. and I'm already exhausted by it. <laughs> so that's just me. And my life hasn't even been directly affected by it in terms of myself getting sick or somebody I know and love getting sick. Speaking of which, you know, mom's getting older, she has a persistent health condition that has to do with her lungs, like, this is all very real for us. Um, so today, we're going to have a conversation that's focused on fear and anxiety, and particularly how we can manage the natural fears that arise around events that are largely outside of our control, the differences between useful anxiety and anxiety that is merely painful, and maybe even a little conversation on sadness and anger around some of these events. Mm -hmm. So to help us do that, I'm joined, as you can probably already hear, by huh. Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, outside of the whole pandemic thing, how are you doing? You mean apart from the <laughs> pandemic thing, how uh, am apart, I doing? Apart from the whole pandemic thing, separate from the whole pandemic thing. Like how's your life as an individual? Okay, honestly, I, I feel enormously happy mm. most of the time, while simultaneously, I'm really alarmed by the effect on other people. Mm -hmm. Overall, I would say for myself that there's a part of my mind that is fascinated by just the weirdness of what's going on and stunned by the pace of it. Another part of me is deeply concerned about the impact of this on the most vulnerable people in the world. What will happen when this virus hits poorer people crowded together in major cities around the world, not just in the developed part of the world? We're going to probably look at something pretty catastrophic and pretty serious, unfortunately, I think. Also, uh, I work with uh, the impact on my psychology of people around me getting rattled by it or resisting being rattled by it. And uh, I'm also very much into a trust in God, but tie your camel. You know, what can mm. we actually do? So we'll be talking about that, I'm sure. So that's how I'm doing. And I'm very happy for us that we're doing this episode and grateful for you that you've built this this vehicle whereby we can offer this kind of information freely to people, to yeah. anybody who wants. Well, thank you. I totally appreciate that. Yeah, no, um, it's obviously it couldn't be more timely. And I think that yeah. just the 
the kind of like justification for what we're doing here arose entirely from my own experience of feeling overwhelmed and to an extent anxious. Yeah. I don't really go into that kind of anxiety, like body anxiety that mm -hmm. easily. I go into other kinds of anxiety pretty easily. Yeah. Um, but just feeling very affected by other people's psycho-emotional state around me and how other mm -hmm. people were naturally and you know, for very good reason, deeply concerned about this. And the way that those those blowbacks were kind of hitting me as well. The blowback from that was hitting me as well. So to kind of pick up on something that you just said, how have you been practicing with this? So oh. you're mentioning, you know, you're a pretty evolved guy. Um, and you were mentioning having both like your own rational kind of, wow, I, you know, I wonder how this is going to go alongside a very rational, wow, this is going to be really horrible for a lot of people alongside, wow, a lot of people are really alarmed right now. How do I practice with that? So mm -hmm. what are you doing? That's great. Well, the way I would say it is that for me, there are these two questions, how to act, how to practice, mm. how to cope with the world outside and how to cope <laughs> with the world inside your own mind, right? That kind of is it. And the two go together, of course, but it sorts into piles uh, what we're doing. And implicit on, in all that is, I would say, one of the most fundamental things of all, both for coping and also for personal well-being, is to, after the shock passes, uh, which might take hours or days, sometimes hopefully just minutes or seconds, after the shock passes, start to mobilize an agentic response. Start to mobilize a stand of, okay, what do I see what are my values? What are my relevant purposes? You know, how can I be active in my relationship to what's happen happening here rather than just being overwhelmed and helpless outrage or helpless fear, which are really bad for both mental health and also really bad for coping. So separating those, I think, is really good. And claiming for yourself, particularly after the shock wears off and you kind of find your footing, uh, claiming for yourself the right to mobilize an adaptive response, mm. like any animal in its habitat. We are animals. We have our habitats. All right, what are we going to do about this challenge? And that alone will help you feel better. <laughs> mm. And it'll help you help other people around you to just claim that sort of adaptive mobilization. All right, that's first point. Personal practice. Um, First and foremost, for me, it's to establish a base of sort of calm strength, mm. an internal base. And there's a lot of work, for example, in developmental psychology on how important it is as, uh, as humans in early childhood to internalize a sense of a secure base from which we can launch. I think about if you're going to do a double backflip dive, you don't want to do it from a really wobbly thing. You mm. know, you want to establish your secure base. So for me, that's like, okay, wait a minute. Take a few breaths, settle in, stabilize, right? That's really, really important. I would say a second thing for me is to keep the heart open. It's so easy to close our own heart when there's a threat, in part out of a focus on immediate survival for ourselves or those who are in our very, very small circle of immediate concern. And I think it's really important to keep the heart open and to not lose sight also of the bigger picture altogether, the ways in which what's happening now is part of a larger whole, it's part of a larger history, 
It's, it, it is situated in the so far 300,000 year history of our species. And, you know, that bigger picture is really important, that one. I would say also, I'll finish on this one, in a way that's annoying to the people around me who are more <laughs> alarmed than I am. <laughs> I have this very strong inclination to not be any more upset about something mm-hmm. than I ought to be. I mm-hmm. put ought to be in air quotes. Each person gets to decide how upset they ought to be, right? But when I assess that uh, on the zero to 10 upset scale, in the core of our being, not just around the periphery of the mind, you know, kind of in the atmosphere of the mind, but in the core of our being, if in the core of your being, you really feel to yourself, you know, I just I do not want to get really upset about this. I know what I'm going to do, and I'm not in denial. There's no ostrich in his head in the sand, but getting more upset than a reasonable amount is not adding value. In mm-hmm. fact, it's creating mm-hmm. costs for myself and for other people. Yeah. Cost to function in terms of action and cost to experiencing in terms of the domain of practice, mm-hmm. right? That's what I'm really trying to say. I think that's important for people to find that middle place where they are not pushing the alarm of others away. Mm-hmm. They're not in denial about potential risks, including risks to others that they, with common humanity, are concerned about on the one hand. Yet on the other hand, to not let what's called emotional contagion mm. uh, infect the mind with the virus of fear, let's mm-hmm. say, that is out of proportion to what is actually happening or is not helpful. And this goes to something that you and I have talked a lot about in our book, Resilient. If there's one book that I think people ought to dust off, <laughs> if not acquire, honestly, is the book you and yeah. I wrote together, because it's all about this. Mm. In other words, it's possible to be very clear-eyed about threats and to cope with them as skillfully as anyone could, mm. given your circumstances, mm-hmm while simultaneously not feeling much fear, if any at all. Yeah. And in fact, there's a good chance you're actually going to be more effective Mm -hmm. if you don't let fear invade you. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great set of points. And all of those have definitely been true for me as well Mm -hmm. in terms of that management of how scared should I be about this? Mm -hmm. And And, and if I can interrupt you... mm -hmm. And what level of negative affect, in other words, mm-hmm. what level of emotion mm-hmm. uh, or invasive pre- or rumination or co- cognitive preoccupations with various ideas, what amount of that is useful? Yeah, and that's something that I just wanted to get into right now yeah. because the real question is that like it, it falls into a couple of different categories, right? Because there's useful anxiety that's protective of you. Yeah. There's not useful anxiety that is yeah. excessive and painful yeah. without benefit. Right. And then there's not useful pushing away of reasonable anxiety or, or deflecting, right. saying, oh right. no, this isn't that big a deal. Right. I shouldn't worry about it. Life's just gonna go on totally as normal, kind of the ostrich with the head in the sand that you were mentioning before. Yeah. Those are kind of three different categories, two extremes, and then one point relatively in the middle. And I think there are obvious errors to be made on both sides. And then underpinning all of that is this natural empathy and appreciation for how the lives of so many people, even if it's not me, Mm -hmm. are going to be profoundly painfully affected by this. Whether it be through, to be real about it, like illness and mortality, Mm -hmm. or it be through 
these massive spirals of causes occurring around it. As people who've been listening to the podcast for a while probably know, I really like dancing. Mm -hmm. Dancing is something that I'm involved with professionally, yeah. and most of my social group dances really seriously. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a worse environment during a pandemic <laughs> than the middle of a crowded dance floor. You know what I mean? A lot of bodies touching, a lot of hands touching, a lot of coughing, a lot of sneezing, a lot of sweating. Like it's basically infection site 101. It's ground yeah. zero. And so all of Sounds these Sounds like events, a cruise ship. It is. It's kind of like a cruise ship. You're in a hotel for three yeah. days surrounded by the same group of yeah. people. It's like a disaster waiting to happen. And yeah. because of that, all of these events are being canceled. Yep. And there was an event that I thought I was going to go to at the end of March. There was another event in April that I thought I was going to go to up in Seattle, which is a major infection site right now. So that was well out. And this is going to have cascading effects right. through the year. Not just for like my personal pleasure and enjoyment, but a lot of my friends are professional dancers. Yeah. They're not teaching anymore. And, and as you brought up yesterday for us, think of all the hotel workers yeah. who live on that stream of revenue and the regular people and all the knock-on yeah. effects. And that's really real. Totally. And that has huge impacts through the system. And there's, man, natural empathy and sadness and caring for those mm -hmm. people. And then it's okay. Like, how do you cope in an effective way yeah. with those natural feelings of, sadness around this without yeah. allowing them to overwhelm you and kind of to use right. the language of Buddhism to invade the mind and remain. Yep. And how do you get the value without getting the pain? So, okay, we're gonna get into all of that, but I wanna start by doing like a little mental exercise here. There is something about this that has evoked a fear response that I have never seen in my lifetime yeah. around a multinational issue, except for maybe some moments where like we thought there was a 1% chance that we were gonna end up in like nuclear war. Yeah. You know, outside of that, like this is as high as the scale goes. And so I wanted to talk for a second about what makes something scary. Yeah. Uh -huh. Because maybe by looking at what yeah. makes something scary, we can find some ways into like good ways to cope with that fear. Yeah. So based on a lot of psychology that you're aware of, what are some of the things that make something scary? I'll start by saying, arguably, of all our emotions, mm -hmm. the first one to evolve was disgust. Mm. Because that primal movement to spit out mm -hmm. something that mm -hmm. doesn't taste right, yeah. doesn't smell good, is absolutely central it's to It's a survival, survival mechanism. You yeah, bet. totally. You mm -hmm. bet. And the neural hardware for that is deeply rooted in kind of the evolutionary stack of the structuring of the brain over time. It's way down close to the basement. Mm -hmm. So that really speaks to the primal fear of contamination. Yeah. It's a very deep thing. And just a sidebar, we could do a whole podcast on fears of contamination, mm. subtle and gross, the ways they affect people at the individual level, driving a lot of OCD-ishness, which are about rituals of dealing with contamination or fear of contamination. And you can see the ways in which there's Purity scale. tests in society. Oh, we're and moving up. You and Racial and ethnic stuff. Oh, you're totally and... such a smart boy. You oh, are. thanks, Dad. <laughs> You could see where I was going. Totally right. <laughs> exactly. So number one, anything that could feel invasive and contaminating. Second, it's invisible. Yeah, that's a huge part of it, right? It freaks people like, out. You could, just, you could just walk anywhere and all of a sudden you have this thing and then you don't know. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of it too. It's that feeling of like, then you don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's there, maybe it's not. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't. Yeah. Like, oh, I've got a little tingle in my throat now just thinking about it. Maybe I'm infected. Yeah. 
Another thing that tends to drive fear is the rate at which a threat mm -hmm. is coming at you, how, how rapidly it's moving and how um, intensive the stimuli is becoming in terms of loudness, brightness, and so forth. Uh, if, for example, you hear a uh, fire engine mm. in the distance, you can barely hear it, and it seems like it's moving away. But if you hear a fire engine and it's clearly moving closer and it's getting louder and louder, and suddenly the horns are blaring outside your house, wah, you know, your heart rate's going to stem pretty fast. So this has come upon us very quickly. Yeah. That's another major factor. Then there's the factor in which of helplessness or agency. In other mm. words, if it's if it's a threat that's coming, like a really serious hurricane, I think there's a lot about a hurricane that's a fairly decent analogy yeah, to this. Totally. You know, we have some history about pandemics. We have some history about hurricanes. You can see the kind of storm tracker. There's uncertainty about where it's going to land, who it's going to hit, et cetera. But if you can see it coming and you feel like, okay, there's something I can do. I can board up my house. Mm -hmm. I can put the kids in a car. We're going to go visit grandma a thousand miles away for a week, kids. Guess what? Sudden spring break. Then we can do something. But if you feel helpless, mm. if you don't know what to do or or if it gets you, you're hearing news that the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and they won't be able to care for you, that too really, really spikes anxiety, mm. the feeling that there's nothing you can do. And then I would say the last thing is the sense of unreliability in leadership. Mm. Uh, we're tribal animals. Imagine a band of 40 or 50 people. And if you feel like your leaders in the band, let's say, are competent and honest with you, and they're going to do the best they can, you might get wiped out, but they're, they're gonna, not going to go down without a serious, sincere fight. Okay, you're going to kind of calm down. On the other hand, if you suddenly realize that there is a threat coming toward you over the next range of mountains, and it looks pretty scary, and your leaders are lying to you or clueless or sitting on their hands about it, that also is really going to freak you out. Yeah, sure. No, totally. I think that those are great points. And for me, the one that I've really seen and experienced is that uh, sense of the lack of agency. Yeah. And I think that part of what you see happening right now is people trying to find ways to express agency when they feel like agency has been removed. One right. of the things that we were talking about recently is like people going into stores and buying all of the bottled water. It's like, well, it's not in the pot water as near as we know, yeah. and they're probably not going to turn the plumbing off for right. some reason. You know, it's <laughs> it's not as if there's been this like it's not like a bomb went off and infrastructure is going to be destroyed, right? Like, so that's not a really rational fear. But you just have this moment where you're freaking out and you go, "I have no idea what to do," so I'm just going to go buy all the bottled water, and like that's the coping mechanism. Yeah, and yeah. then you get home. Yeah. And you have your six months of bottled water and your six months of toilet paper, and you're like, okay, I'm safe now. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, and and I think that that's what you can kind of see in some of this behavior. Yeah, is, that's true. And I think to kind of scale it up and look at some of the kind of non-scientific responses that people have had around this in terms of, you know, essential oil, this, drink more water, that. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you hold your breath in a public place, you won't catch it. Yeah, I saw that going around Facebook the other day. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> Works for the first 30 seconds. Yeah, and then, you know, diminishing returns on that one. Um, and I, I think that that's what you see is you see all of these ways where people are trying to express their agency yeah. a little ineffectively in yeah. order to feel better. And 
I just want to say as a quick note, if buying the extra bottle of water truly makes you feel better about it, go buy the extra bottle of water, man. You know, I mean, as long as right. you're not taking resources away from somebody who actually needs it and you want to be smart about it, you don't want to be exploitative. But like if little actions like that that are not harmful of others help you to feel better about this whole thing, yeah, go ahead. You know, I think that that can be a perfectly okay coping mechanism. It's it's good to be aware you're doing it, I think, on some yeah. level. But I think it can be an okay coping mechanism. So here's a story for us. I don't believe you know. Mm. Uh, among so many stories I've told you repeatedly, I'm sure, over the years, this involves a character called Nasruddin. And there's a series of fables about Nasruddin, okay. who's kind of a classic wise fool. Mm. He's the He does all these dumb things, and yet there's a point in the story, and it's in a tradition. And there are others probably listening to this podcast who know more than I about that tradition, which I locate in the Middle East, etc. Here's the quick story. To summarize a lot of it, Nesrudin goes to the local inn, and he gets drunk, and he's wandering around um, the street and uh, under a light pole. There's a lamppost there. And he's looking close to the ground, and you know, his friends stop him and say, Nasruddin, uh, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for my keys. I went to the bar equivalent, and I'm now, I lost my keys. I'm looking for my keys. So they all search with him for half an hour. And finally, one of them asks, Nasruddin, let's reconstruct this. Where did you lose your keys? Mm. And he says, oh, over there, 50 feet away in the bushes. And they stop and they say, Nasruddin, why in the world have you been searching for your keys under the light post? And he says, well, that's where the light is. <laughs> it's kind of like that, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a great example of misplaced effort. I think that that's a great example of misplaced effort and of the ways where you know people do what they can, but sometimes doing what you can isn't necessarily going to return a positive result to you. So I want to follow up on something that you said a little while ago, which is this distinction between useful and not useful mm -hmm. anxiety. That's really where I want to spend some time here. Yeah. So to recap, three different kinds of like useful, not useful breakdowns. You can be too anxious, too afraid. Mm -hmm. You can be not afraid enough, not yeah. anxious enough, or you can be compelled to useful action by anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to kind of explore each of those and what those kinds of look like and how you can know if you are in category A or category C or if you're right down the middle in category B. Yeah, so first I... I want to really emphasize the whole aspect of being with your experience. Mm. The first of the three main ways to practice that we've explored, uh, be with what's there, then release what's problematic, painful, harmful, et cetera, and grow, third, what would be helpful, beneficial, enjoyable, and so forth. Let be, let go, let in. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that it doesn't sound like you and I are sitting here like Spock 1 and Spock 2, no, uh, yeah. hyper-rationally analyzing mm -hmm. this and pushing away feelings. No, first and foremost, we need to be open to the wave. And if we fight with it or suppress it, we'll pay a price later. Okay. After the wave passes, though, and you start to collect yourself and you start to push back a little bit at the intensity coming at you to say, look, I, I need to figure out what I'm going to do here. What would actually be helpful? When you're in that mode, um, it's true that a background feeling of, let's say, urgency and a certain intensity, that's often really adaptive. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking against that. Mm -hmm. The question becomes, what is accompanying a useful, adaptive, effective feeling of urgency, intensity, mm -hmm. 
uh, kind of a background sense of alarm, like we really need to deal with something here. Uh, what is alongside it? And if alongside it is helplessness or defeat or frustrated outrage that you're just marinating in, that's not good for you. It impairs functioning as, all, as well as well-being. Mm -hmm. That's not good for you. Mm -hmm. So for me, there's a place where uh, I ask myself, if I'm thinking about this, the third or fifth time I think about the same thing, am I learning anything new? Mm -hmm. If not, there could be something better to think about. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and if I'm thinking about something for the fifth time and I'm not getting added value, and while thinking about it, it's upsetting and it works me up and it, and it makes me feel bad, why do it? So how do you, um, if you were in, say, a therapeutic practice yeah. and you were sitting in the room with somebody and they said, doctor, I just can't stop thinking about X, yeah. whatever X is, yeah. I just I'm obsessive. I know that it's a problematic behavior at this point. I know I'm not getting more value, yeah. but I can't stop, insert right. whatever they can't stop doing. How do you help get them out of That's it? That's a great question. Yeah. Well, well, there are three things that person can do. First, can they be with the thought and the worry rather than being identified with it? Mm. In other words, can they observe it with spacious mindfulness? Second, can they stop themselves from feeding it and reinforcing it and following after it? In other words, can they let go? Can they let go of that obsessive thinking and the related feelings and worries? Can they do that? And then third, can they at some point move their attention over to what would be helpful and beneficial. Mm. And I think that, to be clear, when I say be with what's there, if some thought arises that would be really useful to think about, to consider, like some new angle or some new news flash or some new problem to be concerned about, yeah, think about it. On the other hand, if it's clear, as in your question implied, as your question implies, if it's clear that there's no value added mm. in being absorbed in the thought and feeling. You're not learning anything new. It's not making you feel any better. It's not helpful to other people. It's just pain with no gain. Mm. Then for sure, shifting into these three ways of coping is really, really important. The good news is with practice, mm. as people move through that practice loop, be with what's there, let it go, let in what's beneficial. As people move through that again and again and again, they get better at it. Mm -hmm. Which then surfaces the fundamental question of, does the person actually want to practice with their own mind rather than being swept away by it? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that as a na-na-na-na-na-na kind of question. I mean it in a very sincere and existential way. People often are afraid of not being obsessed with things. And so that's why it's actually helpful whether I'm working with someone or as individuals ask themselves, what do I really want here? There is no replacement for existential choice, second by second by second in our lives. And we have to ask ourselves if in our genuine opinion, there's no more value available in ruminating about a particular thing yet again, or being absorbed in the latest news that you can't do anything about, at the point you conclude for yourself, no, no more value add, well, then the question for you is, okay, what are you going to do now? 
mm-hmm. in your inner practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's really beautifully said. To narrow in on kind of one element of that, what are some of the tools out of that like three-stage process? Obviously, we've talked about let be, let go, let in. Many, many times on the podcast, we have a deep library of content that people can look into for specific tools uh, to meet some of these both specific and general challenges that come up in the course of life, but specifically around needless anxiety. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that people can let that go? There are a handful of very effective Mm go-tos, very well-established in research, personally very experienced by me. One is to be able to calm the body at will. If you imagine a kind of stressometer, zero to 10, like how tense and jacked up the body is, zero to 10, let's suppose you're at a seven. Well, if you just take three breaths in which the exhalation is longer than the inhalation, that needle will probably come down to a four Mm. in less than half a minute. So being able to, at will, calm your body and to develop over time trait relaxation. In other words, develop over time a resting state in the body that's relatively calm. That's a very, very useful thing. Second useful thing is to tune into the feeling of grit, determination, resolve, moxie, feistiness, etc. in yourself because anxiety has to do with a fundamental mismatch between perceived threat and perceived resources which are related to actual threat and actual resources. So anxiety has to do with the gap between them. And one way you can help yourself is to bring down the actual threat by, for example, washing your hands when you come home or something like that. And the perceived threat, make sure you're not overestimating the threat. Simultaneously, you can increase your actual resources and your perceived resources. So feeling a fundamental internal determination, strength, fortitude, will really help you feel less anxious. Mm. Third, social support. Mm. Feeling Mm -hmm. that others care about you, that they're with you, doing behaviors that connect you with other people on the outside, while simultaneously on the inside, tuning into your warm-heartedness. Social experiences are calming and soothing, whether they're flowing out or flowing in. So interestingly, mobilizing compassion for others will help you be calmer. Mm. Really interesting. Finding friendliness and kindness for others will help you be calmer. And tapping into the feeling deep down inside that other people care about you will also calm you down. Mm. Fourth, make a plan. Action binds anxiety. Mm. Now your plan might be to wait and see for 12 hours and wake up tomorrow morning and see what the latest news is. Yeah, I think that's a great plan. Or, yep, or your plan might be to gather more information. Or your plan might be to go to the store and try to get the last bottle of soap they've got, maybe. Okay, but you have a plan. Mm -hmm. Plans are good. And in your plan, try to make sure you're not making the error of overestimating the threat or underestimating it. So you wanna, you know, that's another element in here is to develop appraisals of things, including the risks for you personally, um, that are relatively accurate and not overly inflated or overly small. Mm -hmm. The last I'll just suggest is this practice idea that you know, which is when you actually are basically all right right now, which is the 
case for most seconds of most people's lives, really take it in. Try to help it sink in because that internalized felt sense of I'm okay right now, I'm okay right now, is a very important resource to grow Mm. inside yourself. This is not about feeling all la-di-da while the Titanic is sinking around you. Mm -hmm. No. When you grow these resources inside, you're a lot more able to find a lifeboat and get other people on it too. Yeah, absolutely. To follow up on something that you were saying just there, I've had this really fascinating experience inside of my own life recently that I think might be helpful to share and maybe other people will empathize with me on some level where I think that of these three categories, too much anxiety, too little anxiety, right amount of anxiety, initially I probably fell into the too little anxiety category. I was pretty counterphobic about it and just in general sort of viewed it initially as something where I'm like, well, how bad is this going to get actually? And as more and more information comes out, it's like, wow, probably pretty bad. Yeah. And whether or not that's the case in terms of my own individual initial appraisal of it, the experience I was having was one where my life was really pretty great. Yeah. And I have to be aware of, and I think it's appropriate to name, the kind of immense privilege that that statement is based off of in terms of I'm a healthy, young individual with no pre-existing condition. Uh, I work from home largely. I'm largely self-employed. Uh, I do a lot of business stuff that is not going to be adversely affected by this necessarily, probably as near as we can tell, unless everything really goes totally crazy. Um, I'm at no real personal risk of dying from this. It would be extremely unlikely, even if I were to be Mm. infected, that I myself would face like a severe health consequence. Mm -hmm. And I've had all of this positive movement in my work life over the last little while. And in like my personal life in terms of just a sense of agency and effectiveness in the work that I do. Yeah. So there's been this real contrast of feeling like I'm the guy sitting at the table and the kind of meme of uh, the dog sipping the tea going, this is fine, while the house is on fire around him, right? Uh-huh. And that's been really interesting to practice with mm. because you want to be appropriate mm. and you want to be appropriate with other people's fears and you want to feel appropriate for yourself in terms of making good choices and just... Yeah being rational and reasonable about the decisions that you make, like my decision to not go into any events over the next couple of months. And at the same time, I think that it's okay to still feel good about the good things in your life. Right. And without, quote unquote, survivor guilt. Yeah. And without survivor's guilt. Absolutely. Where most of the people in the world right now, understanding that this could totally change, but most of the people in the world right now their primary negative impact comes from the knock-on effects. The knock-on effects, you know, comes from things being canceled, the fear that is pervading society right now, all of that stuff. That's major financial hardship. Major financial uh, hardship or consequences or mm-hmm. whatever. That's most of it right now for most yeah. people. And I think that there's a certain level of Actually, like. Actually, if I could add a knock-on effect, yeah, I just totally. realized one of the knock-on effects for many people, I just realized, is concern about loved ones, if not loss of loved ones, your parent, your grandparent, uh, some older person you know or work with who's been a teacher for you. Uh, Maybe you're in that young group that are going to get a bad flu and that's all. And yet one of the knock-on effects is the impact on you of either losing or potentially losing some older people that you really care about. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I was including that idea of uh, significant suffering to a loved one as a primary effect as opposed to kind of a knock-on. So that's sort of the way that I was thinking about it. But yeah, it's a huge fundamental question is, you know, am I going to be at risk? And just as importantly, are the people around me that I love going to be at risk? Um, And I think that it's really easy for that experience to mobilize into anger and sadness around this whole thing. And at various levels, uh, one level of it is me having the privilege right now of not being in a situation where somebody that I know and love is getting sick. I myself am not getting sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the effects to me right now are knock-on effects. Mm-hmm. You know, They're kind of peripheral things that are disrupting my life in a variety of ways. Yeah. Well, one of those uh, little disruptions, kind of an example of one, is that the NBA just suspended its season, and I like basketball, and the NCAA just canceled the men's tournament, and wow, that's a huge deal for people. And I'm like, I like these things. I want to watch them. I'm not sick. You know, no one around me is sick. Some of these people aren't sick. Some of them actually are sick right now. It's why the NBA is suspended. But the point is that, like, I'm mad about it now. All these things I like are gone and it pisses me off. You All right. Know? And I think that that's a, a natural position that a lot of people could go into. And frankly, particularly people who are a little in denial right now about mm. how bad this sucker's going to get. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the time, as we've talked about extensively on the podcast in the past, Mm. anger is built on a foundation of sadness and it's built on a foundation of loss. And Mm. what are the protective elements of being assertive and angry Mm. that defend us from the um, soft and, you know, vulnerable underbelly of loss? And what can we do to manage those two experiences? So obviously we could do a whole episode on that. That's a big question. Mm. But what's sort of a quick way into that? I can think about two kinds of anger. Uh, One is helpless fury Mm. at those who've let you down. Yeah, totally. And to be clear, I think that's a really normal response to those who've let you down. Uh, And I find that it's really helpful to separate the usefulness of a kind of moral fieriness and clarity about your own view, about your values and right and wrong, good and bad, and so forth. You can separate that out from the psychologically and physiologically, eventually, toxic effects of just mm, seething. It's interesting when you think back on the research on the so-called type A personality and cardiovascular risk, mm, mm-hmm. the, the primary factor, and I, I say this as a non-physician, but I think this is ballpark pretty true, the real risk for type A personalities and the correlations with heart attacks and things like that wasn't that they worked 80 hours a week. Mm. It's that they had hostility. Mm. They were seething in hostility. So it's the combination of intense type A, go, 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 plus hostility. And then if you throw in a third health risk factor like obesity, then you're really, really in trouble. Mm, All right. Mm-hmm. So that thing of seething and anger is really bad for us. And I, I think it's important to be able to say to people who say to you, you're not angry enough to say, look, I agree with you about the facts. I basically, I share your values. I think this is terrible and I'm taking action that's very aligned with you. And meanwhile, I just don't feel the need to add getting really upset about it. Mm. 
That's a really important distinction, right? I'll say that about anger. Another form of anger is where we shoot the messenger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're familiar with that, right? We've seen that a lot around us where uh, we just don't want to be alarmed. We don't want to have our view of things disrupted. Maybe for some reason, we really hope things don't turn out a certain way because we have a vested interest in them turning out a different way. And when people bring to us news that we don't want to hear, you know, we attack them with anger. I mean, I think that's another kind of anger to watch out for. That all said, I'd rather have someone angry than depressed. <laughs> Speaking as a clinician. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Because- Anger ang is mobility. So. Yeah, you can yeah. work with anger. You can, you know, you can move with it. It can become something. And I'll just finish on this notion, uh, kind of from Tibet, the little, I know something but not tons about Tibetan Buddhism, but there's this notion there of these so-called wrathful deities, mm, mm -hmm. these forces in nature, we could say, we could call them kind of archetypal images, who knows if they have some sort of supernatural, ontologically established existence of their own, we're gonna stay out of that, inside the natural frame here. Still, the notion of these protector mm. qualities that are fierce and fiery. And also, frankly, that this is a situation where a certain level of anger is appropriate. And a lot of people, something that I don't wanna have lost in this conversation as a whole is just how, how many people are going to be affected by this and how many people have already been affected by this and how, man, it, it's a total, and I, I use this language in a secular way, but for some people it may not be secular, it's a total act of God situation hmm. where you could have done everything right yep. and still you just got hit by the hammer and maybe you just lost 30% of your life savings and the market's crashing. Mm -hmm. Maybe you no longer have a job because you work at a, you know, hairdressing salon, and all of a sudden nobody wants to come in and be touched. Yeah, uh, Maybe you're a dance teacher who can no longer work with students. That one's very present in my life these days. Whatever it might be, like something truly horrible has happened to you, even if you are not currently sick, even yeah. if no one that you know is currently dying. Yeah, Like there are all of these impacts that are very real and very negative, and I don't want to lose them in this consideration of how to manage the natural fear and anxiety that arises uh, as we talk about these things. And of course, you can have too much fear and anxiety. Of course, you can have fear and anxiety that invade the mind and remain. But, you know, there is an appropriate level of fear here, and there is an appropriate level of coping here around that fear. And I think that it's that balance that we're really trying to approach inside of this conversation. What is the balance of one versus the other? Yeah. You know, when I step back and reflect on all this, one thing that has really struck me is that it's okay to have more than one thing going on in your mind. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's okay to feel upset about what's happening while at the same time making plans and taking action, while at the same time, third, protecting the innermost core of well-being mm -hmm. inside yourself. And having well-being and protecting it doesn't mean that you're being a traitor to those who are suffering. It doesn't mean that you're gonna lower your guard and do stupid things. All three things can be happening. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And as good a note as any to end this conversation on, I think it's a challenging one to wrap up and we could keep on talking about this for really some time, I think. I do wanna add two things really fast, Forrest. Mm -hmm. One is 
for many, many people, and certainly including me, a deep refuge with the meaning of a place of sanctuary and also a place of replenishment and refueling. A deep refuge is being able to tap into whatever for you feels like a deeper ground, a field of awareness inside yourself, your innermost being, maybe something that starts stretching out into the universe, the vastness of it, uh, how small our own little planet is in the larger scale, and maybe for some people, something that has a spiritual dimension to it. That's a really important refuge. And then the last thing I'll just say is to whatever extent I am coping, let's say, allowing the feelings to be present, making a plan, and protecting the core of well-being deep down inside, whatever that is for a person. Meanwhile, we're in a single lifeboat with a lot of other people who, A, are having actual material consequences landing upon them, and or B, are freaking out. And to keep in mind the other people in our little lifeboat, seven and a half billion of us, even if oneself is in a pretty good place. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great reminder. And maybe actually this time, a great note to close the conversation on, because I think that was a really good encapsulation of most of what we've talked about here today, which is that, you know, right now, most of the people listening to this are probably okay themselves, but there are a lot of people who aren't. And how do you balance the real changes and the real risks against the ones that just bring you pain? Yeah, And I think that for each person, they will find their own balance. And hopefully some of the tools that we've suggested here will be useful to you. There's no tidy way to do this, but you do actually have a new book. It's called <laughs> Neurodharma. Uh, it, I think it goes on sale May 5th yeah, and yeah. is currently now available for pre-order. So I just wanted to let people know that yeah. as we wrap this one up, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. And we'll have some uh, episodes over the next couple of weeks, maybe a little bit further out than that, but sometime this month or next, actually talking about the book and exploring some of its material. So really looking forward to that. So one other little reminder, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to us through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating or a positive review. It really does help us out with the old iTunes algorithm. And again, just thank you for supporting the show. Uh, stay safe during these challenging times. Wash your hands. Do the whole thing. Use the uh, disinfectant. You know, maybe buy a bottled water if it makes you feel better, but you might not have to. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening. 